Hey, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with y'all. It's good to be with you guys. If you want to grab a seat, we're going to be looking at 1 John 5, 13 through 17. 1 John 5, 13 through 17. Well, it's good to be with you guys. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. If you do have a Bible with you, please open it, 1 John 5, 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, just look over the shoulder of your neighbor, grab uh, a Bible in the back there. There's some white and blue paperback Bibles. Turn on your phone and and just type into to Google 1 John 5, 13 through 17. That'll get you where you need to go, probably. Um, 1 John 5, 13 through 17. Uh, if this is your first time here, if you've been coming for a little bit, you, don't, uh, you haven't gotten plugged into what God is doing here in our church family, take a moment, fill out the Connect card. Uh, let us know how we can get a hold of you and, and uh, get connected with you. And let us know how we can be praying for you. There's a little... Uh, space for you to jot down some prayer requests in there. We'd love to know how we can be praying for you this week. Uh, that comes to the elders and I and, and uh, the pastors, the other pastors and I, and, and we spend time praying for those uh, requests that come in on Connect cards. So please take a moment, fill those out. Uh, we'd love to be in prayer for you this week. Well, uh, we are nearing the end of our time in First John. Uh, next week, Pastor Dan is going to be closing the series for us as we look at 1 John 5, 18 through 21. Um, but before we get there, we wanted to slow down a little bit because this text is usually taken with verses 18 to 21, but we wanted to slow down a little bit and take one Sunday to look at 13 through 17 uh, because there are just some easily misunderstood, kind of controversial topics and texts uh, here. Uh, we're looking at verse 13 for the third time in this series. Um, actually, we, we opened the series with looking at 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and 1 John 5, 13. Uh, we looked at 1 John 5, 13 again two Sundays ago, and here we are again this morning. And uh, the reason for that is, is that 1 John 5.13 is sort of the, the overarching purpose clause of the book. Uh, John writes this letter because he wants God's people to have assurance. He writes this book because he wants God's people to have certainty regarding their possession of eternal life in Christ. Uh, So the people that John is writing this to, they're struggling with this. Uh, They're struggling with assurance, with confidence, with with certainty. And the reason is, if if you'll remember, is that the false teachers, these false teachers had infiltrated their midst and drawn people away from the faith. Some of their friends and even some of their leaders had abandoned the church. And so they're feeling deflated. They're feeling defeated. They're sensing doubt because of all this. And it reminds me of this scene in the movie Braveheart, uh, Braveheart with Mel Gibson. Um, maybe you've seen it. Uh, most of you probably have. Uh, it's about William Wallace and, um, and uh, about how the British and Scottish are such good friends. Um, 
Oh, but really, the, 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 the movie William Wallace, throughout the movie, he's this kind of courageous and relentless man. He fights for his cause, what he believes in. He, he fights through setbacks and defeats and difficulties when at war with the British, but he continues on and he perseveres and he keeps fighting and he's, he's assured that what he is doing is right. And there's one moment, though, in the movie where, where he just seems to utterly lose the will to fight, and, uh, and, and it's when he discovers in the midst of the battlefield that his friend and comrade, Robert the Bruce, had betrayed him. Um, in actual history, Robert the Bruce didn't actually betray him. They weren't even dudes, really. Um, but that ruins the illustration, so let's not go there. Uh, in the movie, Robert the Bruce betrays Wallace, And when Wallace discovers it, the will to fight just leaves him. He deflates. He just collapses on the battlefield and falls apart. One of his fellow soldiers has to come and pick him up and carry him out on a horse and and ride him off the battlefield. It's, It's almost as if in that moment he questions the whole war and the cause and the pursuit of the freedom of, of Scotland in, in that moment. Not in any other moment in the movie, but in that moment, doubt about everything fills him. And he starts to think himself a fool in this movement as, as foolish. You know, betrayal, being, being abandoned uh, like that can easily lead to one feeling that way. And that's, that's what we're seeing in First John. These Christians, these, these churches, they, they've seen many friends, friends that they've shared life with, friends that they've worshipped with and gathered around the Lord's table with, friends that they've shared meals with and faced persecution with. These friends have denied the faith and abandoned the church. And John speaks about them in, in 1 John 2.19 when he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And so John is writing to this community, they're feeling deflated, they're feeling defeated, they're feeling doubts, and he writes them so that they may have Christian assurance, so that they may have certainty regarding what they possess in Christ. He wants them to not only possess eternal life because they already possess it, but he wants them to enjoy possessing eternal life. He wants them to be comforted by the reality that they possess eternal life in Christ, no question. And so John shows us why, too. He shows us why he wants them to be assured. He shows us in these verses that we're about to read what Christian assurance leads to, what it produces in those who are experiencing assurance. He tells us that it produces a people who are confident in prayer and who help one another persevere in the faith. Assured people are prayerful people. And assured people are those who help other members of the church persevere in the faith. So we're going to dig into 1 John 5, 13 through 17. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And let's listen with reverence and with joy. At 1 John 5, 13 through 17, John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you would anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your spirit. We said it earlier, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And so would you, by the power and presence of your spirit, pierce and mold and form our hearts to love you, to love one another, and to love what you love in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Look with me at the assured people of God, the praying people of God, and the persevering people of God. We see John show us that assured people are praying people, and assured people help one another persevere. And so we're going to look at the assured people of God, the praying people of God, and the persevering people of God. First, we see the assured people of God. God wants his people to be assured. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the main purpose clause of the book. Uh, This is, amongst a few other reasons, John actually has a few purpose clauses in the book, but this is, amongst a few other reasons, why John wrote the book of 1 John. He wants God's people to know, to have assurance, to be certain that they possess eternal life. And over the the last month or so, we've been discussing this doctrine, what's typically called the doctrine of Christian assurance. We've been discussing it more and more, and we've seen that, that Christian assurance is the certainty of one's possession of salvation in Christ. When one experiences Christian assurance, they're experiencing the comfort of felt forgiveness, felt eternal life. Uh, They don't just know on paper that they're children of God, but they feel it too. It's, it's It's a felt knowledge, a knowledge that comes from experience, and it brings great comfort and great peace and great rest to the soul when, son, when someone experiences such a thing. And as we've seen, this is, a, this is a timely word for those to whom John is writing, right? But, but it's also an important word for us to consider because many of us, uh, dare I say most of us, will struggle with Christian assurance at some point in our lives. Uh, This is an experience that Christians can and do have at some point throughout their life. It's certainly not the norm for the Christian life, but almost every believer experiences, struggles with assurance at some point in time. And some of us, some of us struggle with it more than others. Some of us have especially weak consciences. Some of us are more prone to anxiety and fear. Some of us are just, just perpetually struggle with possessing Christian assurance throughout our lives. And if that's you this morning, I want John's words to penetrate your soul. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So notice here first that that 1 John 5.13, John does not equate saving faith and assurance. Notice that he writes to those who believe so that they may know that they have eternal life. They already believe, they already have saving faith, they already possess eternal life in Christ, but John wants them to feel it too. 
Now, I know some, something that can often be a, a frightening thing for those struggling with assurance is that they can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that assurance and saving faith are the same thing, or that assurance is essential to saving faith. But John, notice he's making a distinction between the two here, isn't he? The believers, uh, those who have been born uh, born of God, can and do struggle with doubt. True believers who have been born of God can and do struggle with doubt. Sometimes people use the illustration of flying on an airplane to show this. You know, most of us have flown on on airplanes, uh, I'd say, going on vacation, going on a business trip or something along those lines. And, and, And some of us struggle with some measure of anxiety when riding on planes, right? I mean, I I think we can all picture this person, whether it's us or someone else, uh, a person on a plane who's who's flying there, gripping the armrests, sweating bullets, feeling queasy, breathing heavy. I mean, goodness, you're sitting in a tube in the sky. That's craziness. However, even the most frightened flyer still trusted the plane, still trusted the pilot, still trusted the airline enough to get on that plane. They trusted the plane, the pilot, the airline to get them safely to their destination or else they wouldn't have gotten on the plane in the first place. You know, there's some level of confidence there. There's some level, there's, there's trust there. There's trust enough to get on the plane. They wouldn't have purchased their ticket and boarded that plane otherwise. Similarly to those who have saving faith in Christ, might at times struggle with anxiety, with doubt, with a lack of assurance over whether or not they're a son or daughter of God. And and, and that lack of assurance can come for a number of reasons. Uh, It can come because of unconfessed sin in your life. It can come because you've been sinned against. It can come because of suffering or crisis or difficulty. It can come without us having any earthly idea why it's coming. So if you're struggling with Christian assurance, know that saving faith and assurance, they're not identical. Know that if you are struggling with assurance, your possession of eternal life is not hanging in the balance because the basis of your possession of eternal life is Christ, not your feelings concerning whether or not you possess it. However, let me also encourage you to pursue Christian assurance. You know, 1 John 5.13 reveals that Christian assurance is possible. I know that there are a number of Christian traditions that believe that, that you can't possess Christian assurance or that being assured, being certain of your possession of salvation is actually arrogant and self-righteous. Some of you probably grew up in traditions that told you that. But God is telling you right now through the authority of his word in 1 John 5.13, you can have Christian assurance. And not only that, not only can you have it, but God wants you to. Okay, it's, it's actually God's revealed will for you to have Christian assurance. He wants you to know that you ha- have eternal life. He wants you to know by experience. He wants you to feel that you have eternal life. He wants you to have an extreme and abounding sense of comfort, peace, and rest in your soul. He doesn't want you to doubt. He doesn't want you to waver. He doesn't want you to lack comfort, peace, and rest. He doesn't want you to be anxious over whether or not you possess eternal life. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. And we talked two Sundays ago about how you can pursue Christian assurance. Maybe you didn't know that you should be pursuing Christian assurance, but you should be. 
And we talked about a few ways that you can do that. You know, if you weren't here, you can go to the website or podcast and listen to that sermon. We won't talk about that now because in our text this morning, John doesn't talk as much about what leads to assurance. Notice, particularly in, in verses 14 and 15, he talks more about what assurance produces in the life of Christians. John shows us that assurance produces a prayerful people. So next, look with me at the praying people of God. You know, interestingly, one of the fears of those who don't believe in the doctrine of Christian assurance is that they believe that if we go around telling people that they can be assured and comforted and certain of their salvation, that God's people will be lackadaisical concerning holiness and obedience to Christ's commands. Uh, if people, you know, they say if people are certain of their salvation, then they'll not pray or attend church or strive to obey God and what have you. So we need to kind of keep them on the edge of their seat so they'll, you know, not knowing whether or not they're truly saved so that they'll just strive to be as good as possible. But John seems to think that assurance doesn't lead to a lackadaisicalness concerning holiness and obedience. Instead, John thinks that possession, the possession of assurance produces a people zealous for holiness and obedience. You know, I remember hearing a story a while back about John Bunyan. Uh, he was a, a, a Baptist minister in the 1700s, and, and Baptist ministers weren't, in, in English, they weren't allowed to have, uh, the, in England, they, they weren't allowed to have uh, ministerial license. They, they weren't allowed to preach the gospel as, as ministers. And so he was put in, uh, in prison for, for preaching, and uh, at the same time that he was there, there was a group of Anabaptists in, in prison, and they were debating about this, about whether or not Christians uh, could possess assurance of their salvation, whether or not ministers should tell people that they can have certainty regarding their salvation. And the Anabaptists, they told John Bunyan, they said, listen, you can't tell people that they can be certain of their salvation. You can't tell people to be certain and comforted of their salvation, because then they'll just do whatever they want. To which Bunny responded, he said, no, if, if people have certainty of their salvation, they'll do whatever God wants. And he's exactly right. You know, assuming your salvation does lead to a lackadaisical approach to holiness and obedience. People who assume their salvation are not concerned with prayer and sanctification and growth and grace and holiness, but people who are assured of their salvation are invigorated. They long to be more like Christ. Think about William Wallace throughout the movie, except for that one point, he's assured that his cause is just. He's assured that, that what he's doing is right, and he's invigorated. He fights, and he perseveres, and he's courageous. Well, similarly, assurance leads to, to a people longing to honor their Savior. They're filled with gratitude for what God has done for them. They're filled with passion for the glory and grace of God to be known in the world. And so assurance leads to, as, as, as John shows us here, one of the ways that it manifests itself is through confident prayer. Assured Christians are prayerful Christians and they pray with confidence. And they're confident for at least two reasons. They're confident because of what they possess in Christ. And this just makes sense, right? Like if, if, if you know that you are fully forgiven, if you know that you have been reconciled to the one true and living God, if you know that in Christ you are in the position of being a highly honored son or daughter of the Most High God, then you will be compelled to come to him with your needs and petitions, right? Children are confident in the presence of their parents, if a child is hungry, they don't hesitate to ask their mother or father for food. If a, child, if a child wants to read a book, they grab a book and plop down in their parent's lap and say, read this book for me. 
If a child is in need or a want, they don't hesitate to ask. And in the same way, those who have assurance of their sonship or daughtership approach the Father in prayer with confidence because they know that He hears them and wants to provide for them and wants to give them good gifts. But not only that, not only do God's children approach God in confident prayer because of what they possess in Christ, but God's children approach Him in confident prayer because of what God has promised to do if we approach Him in prayer. Look at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We have God's promise that he will hear us and answer us when we call on him in prayer. And of course, John is bringing to mind the promises of Christ here. Jesus himself said in John 16, 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. God has promised to us in Christ Jesus that he will answer us when we call on him in prayer. When we come to him and ask of him and petition him, he will not turn us away. For as Jesus said, he said, he said that even those who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children. If a child comes and asks their parents for bread, no one would give them a stone. If a child comes to their parent and asks for a fish, they wouldn't give them a snake. By no means, parents give their children good gifts. And likewise, when God's children come to him in prayer, he hears, he answers, he provides, he gives good gifts because he's lavish in generosity and kind in disposition to those who are his own. But as you know, and, and I know, it's probably in the back of your mind right now, experience would also show us that we don't always get what we ask for in prayer, right? Jesus' promise and John's word here, they're not to be interpreted as a blank check. This is not a Whatever you imagine in your mind, God is your genie in a bottle. God is your cosmic butler. God is your divine vending machine kind of thing here. That's not what's going on. There are certain conditions that have to be met for there to be answered prayer. And we won't even cover this right now, but sometimes all the conditions can be met and we still won't get an answer for our prayer. But we won't go down that rabbit trail. And we see here not only the confidence of prayer in the praying people of God, but we also see the conditions of prayer. And there are several conditions uh, of, of prayer mentioned here in the New Testament. You know, Matthew 21, 22 would show us that we must pray in faith. Faith is a necessary condition for prayer. Sometimes patient perseverance is a necessary condition for prayer, as we see in Luke 18, 1 through 18. According to John 5, 17, abiding in Christ, union with Christ is a necessary condition for answered prayer. I also see that being at peace with other Christians is a necessary condition for answered prayer. You know, uh, what, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 26 would lead us to conclude that unresolved conflict with a brother or sister would hinder our prayers. Likewise, 1 Peter 3, 7 says that husbands who don't honor their wives and live with them in an understanding way that their prayers are hindered. Those are some of the conditions mentioned in the New Testament concerning prayer. And here John shows us a condition for answered prayer is praying according to God's will. Now, that term God's will is an extremely complex and somewhat mysterious topic, isn't it? And I wish that we could get into everything that this means this morning as, as much as we possibly can, but simply, you know, time simply won't allow us to answer every single question that you might have 
If you want to meet and talk about this, let's do that. But, but for now, we need to do somewhat of a cursory treatment of this topic. Now, part of the problem when we talk about God's will is that what comes to mind for us is what is sometimes called the hidden will of God. This is the, the will of God uh, concerning things like where we're supposed to live and if we're supposed to get married and if we're supposed to get married, who we're supposed to marry or what job we're supposed to work and things like that. So more often than that, when we think about praying for God's will, we think that we're somehow supposed to discern what God's will is for those sorts of decisions and then pray toward that end. That's not what John is talking about here. He's not talking about praying according to God's hidden will. Rather, he's talking about praying according to God's revealed will. He's talking about praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven where it's done perfectly. Now, what is God's revealed will? The Bible. The Bible. In in the Bible, God has revealed his moral will for his people. For example, we know that from Matthew 5, 27 through 30, that it's God's will for his people not to commit adultery and not to sexually lust after others. So, you know, to, to pray according to God's will for you might mean praying for victory over a porn addiction. We know that it's God's will for us to not be an angry and malicious people from Colossians 3.8, right? And so to pray according to God's will for you might mean praying for victory over sins of anger and malice. We know from Matthew 6.25-34 that it's God's will for his people to be provided for with food and clothing. And so to pray according to God's will means to ask for our daily bread and provision. We, we, we know from Matthew 28.18-20 that it is God's will for his people, uh, for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be converted and to discipled. And so praying according to God's will means praying for unreached people groups to be reached and churches to be planted. We know from Revelation 21.22 that it's God's will for Christ to return and raise his people from the dead and glorify the earth. And so to pray according to God's will means to pray for the return of Christ. Do you get the picture? It's not that we shouldn't pray about where we're supposed to live or what we're supposed to do for work or if and and who we're supposed to marry. We can and we should. But ultimately here, to pray according to God's will means to pray according to what he has revealed to us in his word. You might wonder then, well, why do we need to pray for it? If it's already God's will, then, then he doesn't need our prayers to bring it about. And certainly, he doesn't. He doesn't need us at all. But here's what we need to get through our heads. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. But he has ordered his kingdom in such a way that he won't do anything without us. He is the almighty and omnipotent God. He doesn't need us in order to save his people and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't need us to grow us in grace and holiness and and to bring about repentance in us. He doesn't need us to accomplish his will, but we are his people, we are his children, and he isn't going to do anything in this world without our being involved in it. And one of the means through which he has chosen to accomplish his will is through the prayers of his people. He's the God of the ends and the God of the means. He has sovereignly ordained the ends and the means through which the ends are accomplished. And prayer is one of the means he has ordained to accomplish his ends, his purposes, his will. 
And so we, his people, we ought to pray according to his revealed will. You know, prayers is not the means through which we impose our will upon God. Prayer would be suicide if that were the case. But it is the means through which God accomplishes his will on earth. It's one of the means through which his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And here, John actually gives us an example of something we can and ought to pray for. He says that assurance leads to confident prayer and that a condition for confident prayer being answered is praying according to God's will. And then he says in verses 16 and 17, here's an example of praying according to God's will. And he talks about the perseverance of the people of God. So look with me lastly at the persevering people of God. You know, it's God's will that his people persevere in the faith. And the prayers of God's people is one of the means through which he accomplishes that end. John writes and says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John shows us that when we see one another fall into sin, into habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin, it is incumbent upon us that we pray for one another and seek one another's restoration. That's what John means by life here. He doesn't mean that a believer who falls into sin becomes unborn again and enters into a state of uh, spiritual death again and that we need to pray for them so that they can be re-reborn again. Uh, Life here means being restored to the believing community and being spiritually healed. And when a Christian falls into patterns and habits of unconfessed sin, they are spiritually sick. And and what we need to do when we see one another fall into such a state as the believing community is to prayerfully surround one another and seek uh, one another's restoration and healing lest we fall away. And here, you know, we're getting into the discussion about God sovereignly ordaining the means and ends again. You might be wondering, you know, doesn't this church believe in the perseverance of the saints, that all who are truly born of God will persevere to the end? And I say, yes, you better believe it. We've already seen this in 1 John. 1 John 5, 4, everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. No exceptions. If you have been born of God, you are and will be persevered by the omnipotent God. Nothing can snatch you away while he is resolved to keep you. That is the end which he has ordained. But he's also ordained the means through which that is accomplished. And here, John tells us that it's the believing community. The perseverance of the saints is a community project. God works through his people to persevere his people. And, and, and particularly, John says that God works through the prayers of his people for his people to persevere his people. It's God's will for his people to persevere. Therefore, you should pray for God's people to persevere. That's the kind of prayer that God will answer. But then John says something interesting, doesn't he? He makes sure that he's clear to say that he's not talking about praying for the restoration of people who have fallen into sin that leads to death. Now, what is the sin that leads to death? Admittedly, this is a difficult text to understand and interpret. You know, something that's really boring is when we just don't even address 
topics like this. That is so uninteresting and boring, isn't it? Let's be an interesting people. Let's, let's not be boring. I don't think being boring is, is the, the sin that leads to death, but it's probably pretty close. Now, this is a difficult text to understand and interpret because on the one hand, we know from, from Paul that the wages of sin is death. All sin leads to death, Romans 6.23. But I think what John is talking about here when he says that there is sin that leads to death is that there is sin, that there is a sin that is unforgivable. There is what is often called the unpardonable sin. When Jesus talks about such a sin in Matthew 23, 31, Mark 3, 28, Luke 12, 10, when he says that everyone who speaks a word against Jesus can be forgiven, but the blasphemy, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, it's a consistent, settled and then eventually final resistance of the Holy Spirit's work and testimony concerning Christ. Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit are those who reject the truth of the gospel and do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ. They reject the Spirit's testimony concerning Christ. We've, we've heard a lot about how we know Christ in 1 John. We know Christ. We know the truth concerning Christ. We believe the truth concerning Christ. Why? because the Holy Spirit has testified concerning Christ in our hearts. Well, when someone commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, they reject the Spirit's testimony concerning Christ. They don't just speak a word against the Son of Man. They don't just speak a word against Jesus. They utterly reject the Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus. That is the sin for which one will not be forgiven. But here, John is actually, I think he's being a little more specific than that. He's talking about a particular group of people who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit in a particular way. Remember the context? John is writing to a collection of churches from which many antichrists have gone out and left the faith and left the church. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's talking about what he's calling these antichrists who have denied the faith and abandoned the church. That's the, the sin that leads to death here is this, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that this particular group has done in this particular way. That's what John is talking about. He's talking about those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit by professing the faith and being baptized, and joining the church, and hearing the word of God proclaimed week in and week out, and participating in the Lord's Supper, going to prayer meeting, doing all this and more, and then after a season and time of participating in all that, they deny the faith and abandon the church. Hebrews 6 describes such people. The author speaks about such people in Hebrews 6, 7 through 8, and he says that they're like lands. They're like a land that has received an abundance of rain, but instead of bearing fruit, instead of bearing a useful crop, they've borne thorns and thistles, which is useless and near to being cursed, and which in the end will be burned. In other words, they've, they've participated in the life of the church and activities in the church in which the grace of God is revealed and experienced, but instead of being transformed and saved, they were hardened to the things of God. 
An old Puritan used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So those who are not of God, who have not been born of God, as they participate in these activities, they were hardened. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And so John says, I'm not saying that you should pray for that. I'm not saying that you should pray for the restoration of such people. Notice, though, he doesn't forbid praying for such people. He's actually not even talking about, you know, not praying for them in general. You can do that. He's just talking specifically about praying for the restoration and spiritual healing of those who have fallen into this sin. He's not talking about praying in general for others. And notice that John, he's not even forbidden, forbidding praying for the salvation of those who have left the church. He's not forbidding it. But he's saying that it will likely be a fruitless endeavor because evidently their hearts are so hardened that they cannot repent. They're so hardened to the things of God that they cannot be saved. How do we apply this today? This this is a hard word. It's a word that could easily be interpreted as a license of writing people off too quickly rather than moving toward those who have fallen into sin like we're told to here. And so when applying and living out what John is talking about here today, let me say, we need to err on the side of charity. We need to err on the side of assuming the best about others. We we should not be rash in our judgment concerning whose restoration to pray for and whose restoration to not pray for. Now I think about the example of Jesus in the Gospels Peter and Judas, they committed similar sins. You know, Judas betrayed Jesus. And Peter, he committed a kind of betrayal when he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And yet Jesus prayed for the restoration of Peter, and Peter was restored. Judas, however, was not prayed for, and he was not restored. And if we were rash in our judgment, if we did not err on the side of charity, if we did not assume the best about others, we might not pray for a a Peter-like individual. We might write Peter off too quickly. Yet he was restored not only to the faith, but to be an apostle and lead pastor of God's church in Jerusalem. Therefore, we, we ought to be charitable. We ought to assume the best. We ought not be rash in our judgment. Furthermore, the the seriousness of this text ought to compel us to, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, we're called to examine our lives with humility to discern whether or not we're in the faith. We should not assume our salvation. We can be assured of our salvation. We should want to be assured of our salvation. God wants us to be assured of our salvation, but we shouldn't assume our salvation. So we ought to look at at John's writings here in 1 John about how genuine Christians believe and cling to the truth concerning Christ. How true believers love their brothers and sisters in Christ. How true believers are growing in devotion and obedience to the commandments of Christ. True believers who have been born of God bear these birthmarks of genuine Christianity. They bear the fruit of belief, love, and obedience as we've seen all throughout 1 John so far. 
Let me tell you, if, if, you, if you look at 1 John, I, I want to encourage you, look at 1 John this week. Read through it. Just read through it this week. One chapter a day. You'll be done by Friday if you start tomorrow. One chapter a day. Read through 1 John. Read through 1 John and humbly examine your life in light of it. Examine yourself in, in, in light of what is written and what we've heard over the last four months. And as you read it, read it with an eye toward this overarching purpose of the book. He wrote it so that genuine believers of the Lord Jesus Christ would know, that they would know, that you would know, that you would be certain that you possess eternal life in Christ. And let me tell you, as the author of Hebrews told the, 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 his hearers, I, I say to you, I am sure in your case, I'm sure, beloved, of better things, things that belong to salvation. I, I, I am sure that you have not committed this unpardonable sin. If you're concerned about whether or not you've concerned this unpardonable sin, you have not committed this unpardonable sin. If you're concerned about it, then you have not committed it. God's will for you is that you would have assurance that you possess eternal life in Christ. My friends, if, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life is yours. John wants you to be sure of it. I want you to be sure of it. Most importantly, God wants you to be sure of it. He wants you to live in the comfort, peace, and rest of Christian certainty. And such certainty, it won't produce a lackadaisical approach to Christian holiness and obedience. Rather, Christian assurance produces a community that is fervent and confident in prayer. It produces a community that prays and works hard to ensure that we all together persevere in the faith. Therefore, Veritas, pursue Christian assurance. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, there, is, there are sobering words in this text. There are sobering words words that cause us to, to be compelled to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So I pray that you would help us to do that this week. And as we do so, would you produce in us humility, but would you also produce in us confidence, a humble confidence that Christ is enough that Christ is our salvation, that we possess eternal life in him because he is the basis of our possession of eternal life. And as you produce that assurance within us, Lord, would you compel us to be an invigorated people, confident in prayer, compel us to be a people who are concerned for one another, who love one another, who, who don't keep one another at arm's length, but who move toward one another in love and care and, and desire for one another's restoration and perseverance. Lord, and would you help us to realize that you are the God who does all of this. You use us and you love to use us, but all glory in the end is yours. And so we worship you. 
and we glorify you and we call you worthy, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.